Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Tanner, and I'll be one of your hosts today. Before we get into it, we have two new patrons to thank, so I want to say thank you to Joseph for joining us on the bridge as a second mate, and to Jacob for enlisting as an able sea person. Uh, So more patron stuff here. We have started to work on our second book club episode covering the novel A High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes. We'll get that recorded sometime in the next week or so. We're also working on our main December bonus episode on Elizabeth Friedman and the U.S. Coast Guard's code-breaking capabilities. I'll bring in Taylor just to ask about, uh, do, do we have an update? Do we have a Below Deck episode on its way? Uh, there will be one at some point. I have to watch one more episode and then find some time to record. It's been a little crazy around here with the holidays and then getting a puppy. So, um, yeah, it does not exist yet, but it will. What else have you been up to? Let's see. This weekend, it was a little rough. Uh, NFL-wise, Kenny Pickett went down trying to scramble into the end zone. Don't do that. Pickett's charge? Pickett's charge, it was. And it failed. He did not score. <laughs> I hope the guy that's, that made the stop was from Maine, like University of Maine. I think you're conflating Gettysburg bits. Oh, I am. I've stolen Valor. I transferred Valor from Pickett's charge to Little Round Top. Anyways, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty rough uh, with Kenny Pickett going down. It sucks because they just fired their offensive coordinator, and he actually had a really good game after that, kind of letting the reins off a little bit. And now we'll just have no idea if he's actually good for a while. Yeah. So that sucks. Uh, there are a lot of other injuries, though. Trevor Lawrence went down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's quite a few. It's, it's that time of year in the NFL at this point where everybody has injuries. Uh, I did have a nice night on Monday Night Football with some betting, though. So that that helped. Balance things out a little bit. Yeah, that, that helped ease the NFL woes a little bit. Um, keeping it with football. We'll talk about college football rankings because everybody else is in the sports world. If I was a Florida State <laughs> fan, I'd be pissed. I don't get it. Like, I understand why they did it, but I don't understand how you can look me in the camera and lie to me. From that perspective, I'd say, like, if you're Florida State, it's like, what else are you supposed to do? Yeah, yeah, I know you could, like, win prettier. I hate the idea of they play this whole season and then it comes down to the eye test. It's like th- they have a perfect record. They did not lose a game. It, it's one of those things where it just this points out how much of a sham a lot of the college football stuff has been. Uh, with like the college football playoff and like why the twelve team playoff is a good idea, I'm so sick and tired of always hearing the argument of well, there's not well, there's not twelve teams that could win it, mm-hmm. and like there's not sixty eight teams that could win the NCAA tournament, but it's <laughs> right. one of the most fun sporting events yeah. of the year. Like you can find twelve teams. Like if you re- if you read through the twelve rankings right now, tell me you wouldn't want to watch Oklahoma against Michigan, oh, Ole yeah. Miss against Washington, Penn State against Texas, like. Yeah, we can find 12 teams. Yeah, just give me more football games that are good. Like I Yeah, that are good. Not the like San Diego County Credit Teachers Union College Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like give me give me good games if yeah. you're going to give me if you're going to do this. So, I don't know. It's been an interesting a lot of hot takes in the football world this uh this week. So, it's kind of what I've been doing. What about you? Uh I did watch a bit of football this past Saturday with the conference championships. Got a lot of reading done also. Uh, I read a book, uh, started and finished since our last recording, which was like two weeks ago at this point. It's a book called After the Prophet. 
the epic story of the Shia Sunni split in Islam. Interesting. By Leslie Hazelton. It's my first book I've read from her. She writes a lot about a lot about religion, um, both like historical and in the modern world. It was really great. It was more of a narrative style history, and nice. it covered a lot of the basically just the the early history of Islam, Muhammad and his kind of direct family and his direct descendants. So it, it was it was a really good read in terms of, you know, building up these characters. A very quick read. I think it was only like 200 pages. Uh, just really good at, at um, laying out some of those things in that split, because Sunni and Shia is is often compared to like, you know, Catholic and Protestant. But I think right. one of the I think one of the major differences I, and there are many, many, many major differences the between those two things or why that comparison isn't super great. But one of them is just how much of Islam's lifespan it has occupied. You know, this this uh, this split happens very, very, very early in mm-hmm. Islam's history and how that split affects, you know, to this day, modern politics in the Middle East and the Muslim world. I also recently started a book by Patrick Coburn uh, about Muqtada al-Sadr, and, you know, that plus uh, Pity the Nation, the the politics of, of the Sunni and the Shia really is something that continues to mold you know, that whole region. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something that has has really uh, started to interest me a lot. Um, so, yeah, After the Prophet was a really good read that I definitely recommend. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really interesting read. I also started the book Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson uh, by Jeffrey C. Ward. Uh, that one obviously influenced by our Jack London uh, Seawolf episode because we had to talk about Jack Johnson uh, a fair amount. So I wanted to read a little bit more about him. And that was one I had heard of before. So looking forward to get to getting more into that. Nice. So now here we are. We're finally to episode one, two, three. I feel like we've been like it's been a while since we've done one. Yeah, I mean, the past the past couple months really have been not the most consistent. It's just been a very busy time. You had to go and get married. The holidays. <laughs> and then just spurts of being just like really depressed. So couldn't really work <laughs> on stuff. You know, you have all of the most unfathomable horrors known to man uh, constantly on social media. Don't need to really dance around it because we're talking about the Gaza Freedom Flotilla today. But yeah, obviously the situation uh, continues to deteriorate in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. So yeah, I mean, all that's really depressing, obviously. It is hard. It is hard to uh, to sit and focus on something and sort of take your take your attention away from it. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely that's definitely um, a struggle sometimes. Like you can you can burn yourself out on it like it easily. And, you know, you kind of drive yourself crazy because there's not a lot you can honestly do as an individual sometimes. And I mean, I guess that is that is one reason I'm glad we do have uh, something that we can at least do with this modest platform of our podcast. I, I think it's a really interesting thing. It provides a lot more context to what you look at today. And then, you know, you research more things that went on before that and you provide more context to this situation. Mm-hmm. So I think the more information and the more yeah context you can provide, like the more informed you can be about something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think being informed is ever a bad thing. All right. So again, uh, talking about the 2010 Gaza Freedom Flotilla, uh, a story that some of you maybe are already familiar with. It was a big news story. I remember 
I don't remember where I was even going, but I remember seeing this in an airport on the TV. Interesting. And I don't know. I definitely remember it happening, but like I it is in no way did I engage with it in any meaningful mm-hmm. way at the time. It at the time I probably didn't care, mm-hmm. to be honest. And I just I don't know. I don't really like, remember following it. We might not have time in the background segment here to cover the entire Arab-Israeli conflict. <laughs> Just a little bit. We're not the ones that people want to hear that story from anyway. Reading recommendations, you know, if you're on social media at all, you've probably seen those circulating for the past, what, almost two months at this point. You know, since the, the current, uh, you know, increased violence in Gaza, probably seen people recommending the Hundred Years' War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi. Uh, the Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine by Ilan Pape. Um, I've mentioned Pity the Nation several times on the show. That's focused on Lebanon, but also relevant to what Israel is doing in Gaza and in the West Bank right now. A major source for this episode is the book Midnight on the Mavi Marmara that's edited by Mustafa Bayoumi. It's a collection of essays from a variety of writers on the 2010 Freedom Flotilla and the context behind it. So that provides a lot of the history also. I think one thing with Gaza, you know, because Americans, we we typically only see Gaza when it comes up on the news as the subject of Israeli bombing or raids uh, by the IDF. And so we don't really get to see Gaza as the the historical gem that it it is. I think that is something that's really interesting is like when you start looking into the history of like, well, where did the Phoenicians live? Things like that. And it's like, oh, like it, it's right here. Yeah. And it's like these connections, you know, if you're familiar with, um, you know, like with the Bible and, you know, all the old stories with the Israelites fighting against the Philistines and you know, Samson being captured by the Philistines. Uh, Gaza is where he was taken by the Philistines when he you know brings down the temple around himself. Gaza was besieged by Alexander the Great. Um, you know, it's, it's been a, an important Mediterranean port for a long, long time, like thousands of years. So yeah, I think seeing it in that context also just adds, I don't know, it adds more context. You know, this is a place that's been inhabited for a long, long time. You know, it, 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 I think part of it too, is like, if you're our age, you don't know it as anything, but what it, you know, obviously it's worse in this current moment, but it's always been pretty bad. Like it's never been, mm mm-hmm. You know, we've never seen the history of it here. It's one of those things where we can't even capture, you know, the kind of the perspective, the very skewed perspective, I think, that we would have about Gaza and what it is and and the West Bank, too, honestly. So fast forwarding quite a bit here, uh, we are going to try and keep this focused as much as possible. So to do that, we are just going to start with mandatory Palestine and the British partition of Palestine. Imagine that the British are involved. Cutting stuff up on a map. The territory of the Gaza Strip was originally allotted to Egypt under the British partition. After the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, about a quarter of the Palestinian population ended up living in the Strip. The first Israeli occupation of Gaza occurred during the Suez Crisis in late 1956, and they'd occupy it until March of 1957. Egypt reoccupied the Strip until the Six-Day War in 1967, when it was captured again by Israeli forces. This time, Israel made more permanent plans to stay with the establishment of Gush Katif, which is uh, was a group of 17 settlements. Mm-hmm. And actually, you see this referred to sometimes now uh, in the current 
Israeli invasion of Gaza, you do hear references made to Gush Katif. You know, you know, you'll see those TikToks or whatever of IDF soldiers, you know, dancing and laughing and stuff. And one of the things you hear them mention is Gush Katif, saying we're going to bring back Gush Katif, we're going to reestablish Gush Katif. I have a basic question that I do not know the answer to. Okay, I'm worried I don't either, but uh, we can edit this out. Okay. <laughs> At any point. Was the Gaza Strip ever given to Israel by any sort of international body or the British? So we're actually going to get to the answer is kind of we're going to get to that as part of the Oslo Accords. It's it's always the simple ones like that. <laughs> yeah, when we get to the Oslo Accords, we will kind of cover in what sense does Israel actually possess the Gaza Strip? Yeah, I think that's something I've never actually been clear on. We'll definitely get to that. Uh, So another thing you see in the history of the Gaza Strip is the first intifada uh, from December 1987 to September of 1993. So I'm not going to go into a ton of details here. Um, The first intifada, intifada, just an Arabic word referring to an uprising. We're going to there's going to be another one coming up here soon. In the notes, not like I don't mean in real life. I mean, there might there could be. I don't know. There could be a third one. So I mentioned the Oslo Accords uh, a minute ago. Let's talk about those. So in the mid-90s, the Oslo Accords led to Israel recognizing the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, as the representative of the Palestinian territories, and the PLO recognizing the state of Israel. Dun-dun-dun. Well, it seems like something that would make no one happy. (laughs) Yeah, and so like... um, like in Pity the Nation, the PLO obviously played a big role in Lebanon. That's that's one of the reasons that Israel invades Lebanon is to chase the PLO out. And, you know, Yasser Arafat ends up going into exile, I think, in Tunisia. And so here, you know, back at the table talking with the PLO. Um, and yeah, like you said, this caused a lot of anger on both sides. Um, elements of the Palestinian resistance to this day, you know, this is something that they hold against the PLOs, the real PLO, the, the provisional, <laughs> provisional PLO, the original PLO, and people like Mahmoud Abbas, people who are associated with the politics of Arafat and his and his party. I think what's so interesting is at the time, like, and obviously I was a kid, but mm-hmm. I'm very sure it was presented this way in the media too. They were kind of just all the same. Mm-hmm. Like there wasn't a lot of the um, intricacies of like. Well, the PLO doesn't like, you know, these far like there's there's people more extreme than the PLO. Like I feel like the PLO was always presented as like basically Al Qaeda. Oh right. Well, and and the PLO is kind of an umbrella type term where you've got different people involved. So many of these organizations are conglomerations of other smaller groups that work together mm-hmm. based on need. Uh and you know, speaking of anger here, you know, obviously a lot of Palestinians not happy with the signing of the accords because yet yeah, it recognizes Israel, it recognizes the state that has pushed us out of our homes. And Israelis, some of them not too happy about this either. Um some of them were really upset, weren't they? The Israeli far right not super cool with this, recognizing the PLO, you know, these these terrorists who have been murdering us for all these years. And that resulted in the assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin by an Israeli uh, far-right radical. I, I hate to sound like a centrist, but I really feel like the extremists on both sides messed this up. So to answer your question about Israel possessing or not possessing the Gaza Strip, 
As part of these accords, the external security of the Gaza Strip was excluded from the new Palestinian Authority's responsibility. So saying oh. this is something that Israel is responsible for, is you know external security um, and the defense of the Gaza Strip. And another element that's more directly related to our story today and our show as a whole, that had to do with the waters off of Gaza. So quoting here from the UN report on the flotilla incident. The agreed security arrangements established three maritime activity zones, a central zone extending 20 nautical miles out to sea, bounded by two one nautical mile wide strips of water at the Egyptian end and at the Israeli end of the Gaza Strip, both of which are closed military areas under Israeli control. The central zone, under joint Palestinian-Israeli control, was designated as open for fishing up to the 20-mile limit and for recreational boats up to three nautical miles. Foreign vessels entering the central zone were not allowed to approach closer than 20 nautical miles from the coast pending agreement on construction of a seaport for Gaza. Even though there was a breakdown in security cooperation between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, in 2002, significant aspects of the Oslo Accords remain in force, including provisions related to the territorial waters off of Gaza. So related to that breakdown in security cooperation, (laughs) which is a a bit of an understatement, I would say, uh, was the second intifada. Uh, from September of 2000 to February of 2005. This is right in the time when I know, like, I was becoming aware of right. the Israeli and Palestine conflict. Mm-hmm. This is right around the time, obviously, you know, for an American kid. September 11th was a very eye-opening situation in a young person's life to kind of make you more aware of world affairs. And the fact that there's a lot of things you don't know about the world. Yeah, I think like this is like one of those events that made me realize like, oh, I thought I liked history and knew a lot, but like there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. Like what's going on here? <laughs> we'll we'll skip the the details. You know, this is this is not a second intifada podcast. The second intifadcast, you could call it. That one was much bloodier on both sides uh, than the first had been. I want to say very roughly about three times more casualties in the second than the first. Um, the second sometimes referred to as the Al-Aqsa Intifada, uh, whereas the first one's referred to as the Stone Intifada because of all the stones being thrown. And so here you had about 1,000 Israeli troops and civilians being killed compared to over 3,000 Palestinians. And again, like th- this is the same situation you see now not even so much in Gaza, but you, you see this more in the West Bank of the difficulty in separating out these casualty counts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously Gaza having a, you know, not having a regular military. So yeah, it's very difficult to to parse out who is a civilian and who is, is a, you know, a, a military combat death, but even more so in the West Bank, you see with Israeli settlers, an Israeli settler kicking an Arab family out of their house with the backup from the IDF, you know, is that, is that armed settler a civilian, mm-hmm. you know, or is, is what they're doing civilian activity? I mean, I think the only comparison I have that you can really have with that is like, if you, I've read a lot of settlement of the West, that kind of thing in the American West. And 
I mean, I mean, I don't know. It feels like pretty much the same scenario, right? Like at times the U S government's telling people not to go mm-hmm. to certain places and keeping settlers away. And then other times they're the ones holding the guns, helping the settlers build a house. Like, yeah. you know, so what is that settlers role there? Like, are, are they, are they committing violence in a, in, in a way? Yeah. I mean, I suppose they are, if they're stealing your home, it, it's such a weird area of a discussion. So the end of the second intifada in 2005. One other thing, I guess one little bit of art or culture, I guess it, it'd be definitely right up that alley uh, as far as time would be the, I know you've seen it and I've seen it that paradise now. Yeah. Watched it. In- like, I feel like that is definitely of that time period. And that was one of the movies that first had me like even see something from that point of view of like, well, why would someone feel that committed to an idea? Like it's, it's very eye opening like as a high school student. Yeah, for sure. So with the end of the second intifada, this coincides with the, uh, the Israeli Knesset approving the disengagement plan implementation law, uh, which would see the removal of Israeli settlements in the West bank, which contained about 8,000 Jewish settlers who were made to relocate. Yeah, and this is something I remember seeing on TV, like college, you know, 2007, 2008, is like IDF soldiers pulling Israelis mm-hmm. out of, play, you know, houses and stuff. And like being a little confused and not fully understanding why that was happening. This did include the withdrawal of all Israeli military ground personnel from the Strip. And that's a pretty huge development for the scope of this episode. Since we'll be talking about the naval blockade of Gaza. And so the lack of ground troops in Gaza itself raises the question of whether or not Israel occupies the Strip in the close technical reading of the term occupy, which we'll talk about more. Uh, In January 2006, legislative elections in the Palestinian territories saw Hamas win 44% of the vote and 74 out of 132 seats compared to 41% or 45 seats for the incumbent Fatah party. I don't know much about Palestinian politics. Is the Fatah party a little more moderate or are they, is that not? I mean, they would still be historically considered quote unquote terrorists uh, because you okay. know, this is, this is the party of Yasser Arafat. Okay. But as we saw with the recognition, the, the Oslo Accords willing to work with Israel, willing to recognize Israel which is one of the sources of the negative feelings toward Fatah, towards Mahmoud Abbas. But to be to be clear, Hamas would be more radical than Fatah. We would say, yeah, they're more radical. I mean, in, in the sense that they won't work with, with Israel by recognizing okay. them in the same way that Fatah did. So again, this, was the, this is the election. This is the origin of the very much referenced, but they voted for Hamas. This is this is what they're talking about when people say that. And I think another thing here, the whole like Hamas or not Hamas is a very American way of looking at this because we are very used to this binary of you've got to vote for this person or this person. There's other parties there, too. There's other groups. Um, You know, this is there's groups forming, you know, coalitions and things like that. It's not exactly the same as what we think about when we have an election in the United States. Also, the but they voted for Hamas thing is sort of like when you watch K-Hive people dunk on people for like freezing to death in Texas. I'd be like, well, guess you won't vote red next time. And it's like, well, there's like <laughs> millions of people that didn't vote red in Texas. Yeah. So like, you know, they're freezing too. 
Quoting here from Sarah Roy in Gaza, treading on shards. Immediately after those elections, Israel and certain donor countries suspended contacts with the Palestinian Authority, which was soon followed by the suspension of direct aid and the subsequent imposition of international financial boycott by the PA. By this time, Israel had already been withholding monthly tax revenues and custom duties collected on behalf of the authority, had effectively ended Gazan employment inside Israel, and had drastically reduced Gaza's external trade. Again, something the United States is very familiar with, saying, yes, you should have democratic elections, but... (laughs) But if you vote for the wrong person, we will make sure we'll make sure you vote for the right. Yeah, we will make sure that you don't make that mistake twice. So as we just mentioned, Hamas differed from Fatah in that Hamas refused to recognize the Israeli government and vice versa, as Hamas was considered a terrorist organization, as it officially is by the United States. In June 2006. Now, this is a story I definitely remember, probably one of the earliest specific stories I remember. Absolutely. I remember this story especially because we would have been seeing this on Fox News. Absolutely. In June 2006, Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit was captured in a cross-border raid conducted by the Al-Qassam brigades and taken back into Gaza. For anyone who's somehow not seen this on social media, Al-Qassam brigades are just the, technically the armed wing of Hamas, uh, which is kind of the, the political organization. Two Israeli soldiers and two Al-Qassam fighters were also killed during this raid. And the capture of Shalit prompted the IDF to undertake Operation Summer Rains, followed by Operation Autumn Clouds, both of which failed to recover Shalit, who would eventually be exchanged in 2011. Can you imagine being held prisoner for five years? (laughs) Like, that's crazy. And they try two military operations and neither one gets you? Although I guess better than now, where if you get taken hostage... Um, yeah, you're, right. You're pretty much just going to have a house collapsed on top of you as the strategy to rescue you. They were a little more patient here. Next up, uh, another big bit of drama here. In 2007, tensions between Fatah and Hamas erupted into the Battle of Gaza, leading to Fatah being expelled from the Strip and Hamas taking full control. So up to that point, it still was kind of a unity thing where they're both participating in the government. There's a lot to that story. Um, I know part of it involves Fatah basically attempting a coup against Hamas and Hamas pulling that Uno reverse card on them and kicking them out. I, I remember this going on and having zero context for any of it and just not even beginning to understand that part of this whole story. Yeah, I remember here. This is kind of where I remember learning the difference between, OK, this is Hamas. This is Fatah. This is you know, this is the group that had, you know, Yasser Arafat and because he was one of the only people I knew um, at the time. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, this involved a lot of like street fighting, a lot of gun battles, executions. Also, um, you know, something you still see in in Gaza and the West Bank, not for the reasons that people like to talk about Hamas executing people on on social media, but a lot of, you know, things, people being accused of espionage, um, people being accused of, you know, being Israeli plants things like that. Uh, So in September 2007, Israel declared Gaza to be hostile territory and implemented harsher restrictions on what was allowed in or out. Is that somewhat a result of the Fatah and Hamas fighting? Yeah, for sure. The idea that now the Strip is totally controlled by Hamas, 
who we have said are these are the worst guys compared to just the bad guys. Uh, next up is Operation Cast Lead uh, from 2008 to 2009. And kind of before the current invasion, Cast Lead was kind of the yardstick that people would compare these things to of saying, you know, this is this is the peak of Israeli aggression against Palestinians. That was a military operation that killed around, I think it was around 1,400 people in the Gaza Strip and destroyed an estimated one out of every eight Palestinian homes in the Strip, which I think seems like child's play compared to what we've seen uh, recently. In January 2009, the full naval blockade of the Strip was announced and implemented. Uh, According to Israeli Chief of General Staff Gabi Ashkenazi, the trigger for the imposition of the blockade was, quote, the phenomenon of the flotillas, which we'll get to talking about in a minute here. The effects of the blockade prompted the International Committee of the Red Cross to issue a statement in June 2010, calling the situation in Gaza devastating and emphasizing that the closure constitutes a collective punishment imposed in clear violation of Israel's obligations under international humanitarian law. A Human Rights Committee observation of Gaza in September 2010 would lead them to express concern that The effects of the blockade on the civilian population in the Gaza Strip, including restrictions to their freedom of movement, some of which led to deaths of patients in need of urgent medical care, as well as restrictions on the access to sufficient drinking water and adequate sanitation. So, All of this despite the fact that in June 2010, there was an attempt by the Israeli government to ease restrictions while clamping down on military or potentially military material. Restrictions on construction material and fuel remain very strict, making it really hard to rebuild after the destruction of cast lead. So a question that runs through this whole story, uh, one that concerns us, focused on the maritime aspect of these things, the question of whether or not the blockade of Gaza is actually legal under international law. Whatever that is, we have kind of seen in the past two months, international law doesn't exist. No one's going to punish you for doing something wrong. But let's look at it anyway, just as, I don't know, an academic question. We've looked in detail at two blockades before on the show. Um, We've looked at the United States blockade of the Confederacy during the Civil War and the one imposed by Great Britain on Germany during the First World War. We focused on the purely naval aspects of those blockades and namely the ability to actually enforce a declared blockade. We talked about uh, the idea of a paper blockade, Mm -hmm. inability to actually physically enforce this blockade, uh, which would be illegal under international law. Um, So in the case of Gaza, though, the ability to enforce it really is not the issue. Gaza has only about 25 miles of coastline, and Gaza City itself is the only somewhat functional seaport. So that's not really the issue. Like, we we know that Israel can enforce this blockade. Yeah. What is the issue is the debate over whether or not the Gaza Strip is technically occupied. Israel argues that it doesn't occupy the Strip since there have not been military forces deployed to Gaza in an occupation role since the withdrawal in 2005. Israel doesn't keep troops there permanently, as we've seen, like with the current invasion, they will send them in as needed, but they don't station troops there permanently. However, UN General Assembly and Security Council have both ruled that Israel does occupy the Strip. The Goldstone Report, if you read anything about Operation Cast Lead, you'll read the Goldstone Report, compiled in the aftermath of that operation, assessed the situation as follows. 
Given the specific geopolitical configuration of the Gaza Strip, the powers that Israel exercises from the borders enable it to determine the conditions of life within the Gaza Strip. Israel controls the border crossings, including to a significant degree the Rafah crossing to Egypt, under the terms of the Agreement of Movement and Access, and decides what and who gets in or out of the Gaza Strip. It also controls a territorial sea adjacent to the Gaza Strip and has declared a virtual blockade and limits to the fishing zone, thereby regulating economic activity in that zone. It also keeps complete control of the airspace of the Gaza Strip through continuous surveillance by aircraft and unmanned aviation vehicles. No-go areas are declared within the Gaza Strip near the border where Israeli settlements used to be, and enforced by Israeli armed forces. Furthermore, Israel regulates the local monetary market based on the Israeli currency and controls taxes and customs duties. So the focus of our talk today is the 2010 Gaza Freedom Flotilla. But this wasn't a one-off event. There were more, several more actually. The first one was in August of 2008, and that one was followed by four more that encountered no significant issues in reaching Gaza. The sixth flotilla happened in December 2008, during the aforementioned Operation Cast Lead. This one ended with the vessel Dignity carrying surgeons and three tons of medical supplies being rammed by Israeli naval vessels. And so now we see them start to encounter complications to what they're trying to do. Uh, Attempts 7 and 8 were both turned back from reaching Gaza, uh, coinciding with newly increased military closures of Gaza by sea. And this brings us to the focus of our talk here, the ninth flotilla in 2010. So this flotilla was a lot larger than previous attempts were, and it originally consisted of seven vessels. For this one, the Free Gaza Movement partnered with five other organizations to get together uh, this larger flotilla. One of the organizations that we'll be referring to in this part and in part two is the Turkish humanitarian organization IHH, which is the Foundation for Human Rights and Freedoms and Humanitarian Relief. The IHH is from its, from its Turkish name, which I'm not even going to try. Right. The other organizations in the coalition were the European Campaign to End the Siege of Gaza, the Greek Ship to Gaza Campaign, the Swedish Ship to Gaza Campaign, and the International Committee to End the Siege of Gaza. You know you're doing something right when you have Turks and Greeks working together on something. This is very true. I like hadn't even put that together in my head, but yeah, you you know you've you've got a good thing going here. It's like that uh it was one of the early votes or something in the UN about Israel's actions in Gaza and I think it was Joe Kasabian who tweeted like you know you're doing something terrible when you can get the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis to agree that it's <laughs> bad. Same way. <laughs> Um, the participants in the flotilla hailed from, my notes say more than 30 countries. It may have been as many as 40. Uh, as we'll see later on, a lot of those are Turks, just because of the organizations involved. All of the flotillas up to this point shared two goals, as described by Anne de Young. To physically break Israel's blockade on Gaza by sea to express solidarity with the besieged population, and to confront Israel's ongoing abuses of Palestinian human and political rights through citizen, nonviolent direct action, and to increase pressure on the international community to end support for the Israeli occupation. 
the UN report kind of goes in and to, to analyze both of those goals and mm-hmm. talking about the, the reality of them. Um, you know, obviously we'll get into this here and in part two, but this is a humanitarian mission, but it's also a political one. Mm-hmm. This is why this is so publicly done. This is why this is why it isn't being done through the traditional humanitarian channels, because this is very much a political statement. It's like meant to draw attention. Yeah, this is a message that people are trying to send. So because of the increased size of the flotilla, additional safety and security measures were implemented. And this included a requirement that each organization as a whole and each passenger as an individual would need to agree in writing to several points of unity, which included. We respect the human rights of everyone, regardless of race, gender, tribe, religion, ethnicity, nationality, sexual orientation, citizenship, or language. The lawful inhabitants of all territories occupied by Israel since June 5th, 1967 including refugees unable to return to their lawful homes in Palestine, must have unimpeded access to international waters and airspace in conformity with all UN resolutions and international law. We stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people, but to support no particular political party or organization, without exception. Um, so trying to cover some bases here about what are they here for, what do they stand for, basically what, what are they signing up for when you, when you join this uh, flotilla? One thing I kind of go back to in looking back at those two points previous, that to physically break the blockade, but also through nonviolent direct action. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just a discussion point. Can one break a blockade nonviolently? I mean, I think what you're doing is you're you're putting the other side in the position to 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 commit violence. mm -hmm. Which I think is the idea. I mean, that's that's really what nonviolent protest is. I'm thinking of any of like your civil rights protests where, yeah, I mean, the idea is that you're you're probably going to get beat up by the cops. Right. And hopefully um, leading to people seeing that and going like, wow, it really seems like one of these sides is the bad guy. And I, right. do, I don't think it's the unarmed person being beat with, you know, billy clubs on the ground. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's always going to be part of it, I think. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that this story we're going to be telling here is was so shocking mm-hmm. because up to this point israel had dealt with these things uh, by comparison for the way that the idf handles things pretty gently mm-hmm. sternly i'm sure but but not with wanton violence right so with with our flotilla here uh the largest vessel was the mavi marmara a passenger ship with 577 people on board registered in the comoros and owned by ihh there were three cargo vessels, uh, one called the Defne, with 20 people aboard, registered in Kiribati and owned by the IHH. Gaza 1, uh, with 18 aboard, registered in Turkey and owned by IHH. Eleftheri Mesogios, also known as the Sophia in some accounts, with 30 aboard, registered in Greece and owned by Eleftheri Mesogios, Company of Athens. Uh, the name of that ship and the company just means free Mediterranean. Interesting. Uh, there were three smaller passenger vessels. I think these were literally just like, like boats, like like sailboats, like pleasure stuff. craft type things. Um, Interesting. One was called the Svendoni, or the Svendone in some accounts, registered in Togo with ownership in the Marshall Islands. Challenger One, 
a U.S. registered pleasure craft owned by the Free Gaza Movement, and Challenger 2, also a U.S. registered pleasure craft owned by the Free Gaza Movement. Challenger 2, actually with 20 people aboard, suffered a breakdown, uh, leading to those 20 being transferred to the Mavi Marmara. So again, as always, like with the Mavi Marmara, I, the numbers probably change from account to account. There's mm-hmm. a little bit under 600 people on board that ship. So there was actually one additional boat uh, included here called the Rachel Corey. That's a name, you know, anyone who has followed Palestine knows the name Rachel Corey. Pro- probably the most famous American involved with the cause of Palestine. That boat uh, was delayed leaving Ireland, so they weren't present for the incident we'll be discussing. Uh, they did eventually depart for Gaza and had a similar uh, but much less violent experience. So that boat, uh, Rachel Corey, was an American activist uh, who was killed in 2003 uh, while protesting the destruction of Palestinian homes in Rafah in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. She has, a, I mean, she has a pretty like amazing story. Um, she had gone to Gaza as a way to to sort of observe and and to help out. She stood down an Israeli armored bulldozer that was approaching the buildings. Uh, the operator failed to stop killing Rachel Corey in the process. Yeah, that um, I feel like that story is one that um, I didn't know until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I just were randomly click like you know you kind of go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole or something, and you end up clicking that and. You almost like artist amazed you haven't heard it before mm-hmm. because of just how insane that story actually is. It is a pretty crazy story. It gives me um, it's one of those stories that I feel like is up there with like the Sophie Scholl Germany, like 1943, the White Rose type stuff. It's it's that same type of story of like it feels like something from a movie or a novel. I mean, since we're talking about her, it's a, a good a time as any. Um Rachel Corey's journals are collected in book form uh, as a book called Let Me Stand Alone. And I think the interesting thing about the book is, you know, these these are her journals. I and mean, she was she was pretty young when she died. I think she was only 23, 22 or 23, I think. And, you know, these journals, they go back to when she was like 16. God, that has to be some weird reading. And so, yeah, like it, it kind of it it's almost more touching and and heavier because of how silly some of the stuff is um how it's what you expect from a 16 year old girl writing in her diary and then the kind of the way it develops into talking about world events and life experiences and you know certainly by the end when she gets to gaza there's a part actually you know we talked at the beginning about kind of our role as white american males who who don't really have to deal with oppression in any form uh she uh she wrote february 7th 2003 i'm asking people who care about me or just have some passing interest in me to use my presence in occupied palestine as a reason to actively search for information about the israeli-palestinian conflict and of course particularly about the role of the united states in perpetuating it i'm here because i recognize that as a citizen of the united states i have some responsibility for what's happening here and I think that was a really, I mean, you've you've heard it a lot, honestly, like on social media, especially in the past two months. But I, I think especially as Americans, it it helps to interrogate, you know, our role in what we see happening on TV. Like it, it isn't it isn't just something that's happening over there. It's something that starts over here. And like, I think the big thing is like, that doesn't mean like you individually are like to blame. I think it's just understanding what 
the government of the United States has played in that. So back to our story here. The ships came together at a rendezvous point south of the island of Cyprus on May 30th, 2010. Flotilla carried humanitarian aid in the form of food, medical supplies, construction materials, and hardware. Uh, Among the construction materials, 750 tons of iron, 3,500 tons of cement, two trucks of wood, 100 precast home units, and 16 children's playground sets. The flotilla wasn't, and was not intended to be, a secret or a surprise to the Israelis. The goal is to challenge the blockade in a way that would draw the world's attention, so obviously not something you're trying to do covertly. Uh, Brazilian-American filmmaker and activist Yara Lee wrote about the reasons she joined the flotilla. I believe that resolutely nonviolent actions which call attention to the blockade are vital in educating the public about what is taking place. Simply put, there is no decent justification for preventing shipments of humanitarian aid from reaching a people in crisis. So fun fact here, Yara Lee is the director of that documentary on Western Sahara, Life is Waiting, that I talked about a few episodes ago. Interesting. Quoting here from the diary of Swedish writer Henning Mankel, a participant in the flotilla. After the war a year ago, life has become more and more unbearable for the Palestinians who live in Gaza. There is a huge shortage of the bare necessities for living any sort of decent life. Palestinians who have been forced by the Israelis to live in this misery need to know that they are not alone, not forgotten. The world has to be reminded of their existence. All that being the case, the decision makers in the Israeli government, they had plenty of time to plan what their response was going to be to the approach of this freedom flotilla. On Wednesday the 26th, so just a few days before the rendezvous, a meeting of top Israeli officials gathered to strategize. Uh, Israeli defense minister at the time, Ehud Barak, and other officials, including the army chief of staff, came to an agreement on raiding and taking control of the vessels. But that wasn't really the focus of the discussions. That was kind of an easy topic. Main issue in play here was how to deal with the consequences that be sure to follow both diplomatically and in regard to media coverage. Um, So this was really a a preliminary damage control meeting rather than a, a tactical one. And this is going to bring us technically into the incident portion of our notes. Quoting here from an article called Freedom Thwarted, Israel's Illegal Attack on the Gaza Flotilla uh, by George Bisharat, Kerry James, and Rose Michon. An Israeli military convoy left Haifa to intercept the flotilla at approximately 9 p.m. on May 30th. Israeli military vessels approached the flotilla in international waters around 11 p.m. As Israeli forces approached, the flotilla radioed the Israeli ships with requests not to attack, and traveled deeper into international waters. Shortly after 4 a.m., Israeli commandos initiated a raid on the flotilla's ships. Throughout the raid, the flotilla remained in international waters, between 70 and 90 miles off the coast of Israel. That is where we will leave the flotilla for now. Next week, we'll get into the raid itself and, of course, the aftermath and what this leads to and kind of how it connects to where we are today. I guess we will sign off now. Uh, So take care and we will talk to you next week.